It was a struggle. You would look behind your back at all times. You know, my first reaction was, this is utterly nuts. And why are you doing this? This is one of the strangest stories you'll ever hear. At first, it seems to be about one family's entanglement with the mob. She could see these two men with guns. So that completely shook her up. And the terrifying fallout of a life spinning out of control. I just remember feeling fearful and also this sense of what's the point of my life. I just felt so out of touch and isolated. But it ultimately takes us somewhere incredibly sad, where decades of deception unravel. He really, in some ways, destroyed our family. I just felt like everything had fallen to pieces around me. This is Betrayed from Penguin Random House Canada. I'm Tina Pitaway. In this series, we explore the darkest sides of human nature and the lives of those left in its wake. Murderers, con artists, the systems that bring them to justice or let them walk free. Over the course of the series, we'll look at four different stories and seek answers to some of the most fundamental questions that arise in the face of shattered trust. Who could do such a thing? How do survivors move on? What could have made a difference? Could this ever happen to me? Run, hide, repeat. Part one. It's February, 1988. Cheers and the Golden Girls rule television. George Michael's father figure is about to hit number one, and Pauline Dakin is 23 years old. She's driven from her home in St. John, New Brunswick, where she's working as a reporter at a local newspaper, to a little town called Sussex. She's there to see her mother, Ruth. She had called me a couple of days earlier and said, will you meet me? Ruth told Pauline that she had something important to tell her. Something that I'd been asking about for a long time. Growing up, there were countless incidents that Pauline always thought seemed a little off, and sometimes a lot off. I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I'll tell you when you're older. Incidents that Ruth would always say she'd explain when Pauline and her brother Ted were older. There were surprise moves from one city to another one end of the country to another, with no chance to say goodbye to friends or family. And small but unsettling things, like her mother suddenly throwing out all of the food in the fridge, even things that had a long shelf life, like ketchup and mustard. All of it tossed. Finally, Ruth was going to share with Pauline just what was behind all of these weird events in her life. We met at a garage on the highway And she just looked different. There was something funny about her demeanor. And so I, you know, leaned over to give her a hug, and she hugged me back. But it was just, there was something strange. And she passed me a note and an envelope. And the note said, don't say anything. Take your jewelry off. Put it in the envelope. I'll explain when we get where we're going. And it just, 
it was the eeriest thing. I thought, what is going on here? So uh, we drove along in her car to the motel that was nearby, just off the highway. I felt this sense of, I don't know, um, anticipation and dread, I guess, as we got out of the car and we go up to the motel room, and I, I had no idea what to expect. Pauline's parents split when she was five in 1969. Starting from the time that my parents divorced, or, or separated really, strange things had happened, for which there was just never a satisfying answer. Her father, Warren, was an alcoholic. He could be violent sometimes. The split was a bitter one. It dragged on for close to a decade, with many disputes over things like late support payments and access to the kids. The separation agreement provided Ruth with $800 a month, as long as she continued to live a so-called chaste life, a requirement many women of that time had to agree to in order to secure support. Pauline and her little brother Ted remained with their mom in the family home in North Vancouver. That's when strange things started happening. One time I came home from school with my brother and we were rushed into the bathroom and told to sit on the side of the tub and wash our feet in this solution. And then we had to put plastic bags on our feet and then get out of the house. At the time, Pauline and Ted were told that there was some kind of a harmful cleaner that had been used on the carpets, a substance that they needed to wash off immediately. As we'll hear later, in that 1988 motel meeting with her mom, Pauline learned a more ominous reason for the panic over their feet, along with answers to all sorts of other strange things that had happened over the years. We had some new family friends that we were doing a lot of camping and traveling with, and every once in a while, you know, together with them, we would suddenly go hiking on a school night and end up in a cabin and sleep over there. These new family friends were a couple named Stan and Sybil Sears. Stan was a United Church minister. Ruth met Stan shortly after her separation and just before all the weird things started happening. I would have been about six when my mother was seeing Stan for counseling. In addition to being a minister, Stan had had some training in psychological counseling. Ruth was attending meetings at Al-Anon, a support group for people whose loved ones struggled with alcoholism. And she was very depressed. Sometimes Al-Anon members connected with Stan for one-on-one counseling. And somebody there recognized that she was quite fragile and said, you should go see this fellow Stan Sears, who's an excellent counselor. Ruth began counseling sessions with Stan. Then she took a job as a secretary with the church where he ministered. One time... We were told that we were going for a sleepover at these friends' house. Uh, It was a school night, and I was always told no sleepovers on school nights. I didn't understand what was going on. And uh, when we got there, we had dinner with them, but everybody seemed kind of strained. And so we went to bed, and I was reading in bed, and then uh, suddenly there was this terrible commotion in the basement and it was we could hear and even feel banging and grunting and things were being knocked around and I I I was just terrified I couldn't even yell for help I just was so afraid the next thing you know mom comes into my room and I can see that Ted and these friends are out in the hallway and I'm saying what's going on what's going on and the answer was oh the dog is all upset 
And there's just no way that that made any sense or that that was a, a reasonable explanation for what we were hearing. So, you know, again, there was always this mysterious, something mysterious going on. And when we would say, what's going on? The answer was always, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I'll tell you when you're older. I guess the the oddest things that had happened uh, were that twice my family had just kind of up and moved away, disappeared without telling anybody. But both times, both of those moves, Stan and Sybil moved with us. The first time it happened, we went from North Vancouver to Winnipeg. It was 1974. Pauline was nine and her brother Ted was seven. We thought we were going on vacation and when we got to Winnipeg, we were told we're not going back and you can't talk to anybody who's left behind back there. The reason for this move was never really explained to the kids, but Pauline remembers thinking it was because her mom wanted to put some distance between themselves and her dad, whose drinking was a fairly constant source of chaos and conflict. In Winnipeg, Ruth bought a little house and found work with the provincial hydro company. Having Stan and Sybil in their lives provided Ruth and the kids with a lot of support, and over time, Stan became a real father figure to Pauline and Ted. Stan seemed, had always seemed to me like such a good person. Then, five years into their life in Winnipeg, another move. The second time we were told, but we were sworn to secrecy. That second move, when Pauline was 13, took them all the way from Winnipeg to St. John, New Brunswick. And once again, Sybil and Stan moved too. So in the end, we'd all ended up on the East Coast. So back to where this story started, that meeting with her mom in 1988. As far as Pauline knew, the weekend get-together was going to be just between the two of them. And I walk into the motel room and, you know, I'm looking around, what's going on in this motel room that I have to be so quiet about? Suddenly there's an adjoining door and that door opens and Stan walks out and I, well, I, I was just overwhelmed. I First of all, I was so happy to see him because they'd been such good friends. He'd really been like a dad to me. And second of all, Why was he here and in a motel room next door? It was so strange. Pauline hadn't seen Stan in years. He and Sybil had spent a couple of years in St. John, but had moved back out west a few years earlier. Seeing Stan in the motel room really threw Pauline for a loop. So the three of you, you sit down and Stan and your mom reveal something very shocking. Yeah, they told me that what explained all of the strange things that had happened since the time I was about seven was that we had been on the run from the mafia, that the mafia had targeted us and that our lives were in jeopardy and we'd had to disappear and, you know, get out of town because somebody was coming after us. So that's what was behind all the strangeness. How did the mafia come to be a part of Stan and your mother's lives? Well, it was quite a complex story. Stan, before he met my mother, had counseled somebody else uh, who had been some kind of organized crime kingpin. And he had been, I guess, regretting his life. And he was trying to get sober. And he was seeing Stan about that. And then he was assassinated. Assassinated because his fellow mobsters discovered that he'd been talking to Stan. That also meant that Stan, having heard this mobster's secrets, had become a target. And then assumed that Stan knew too much. The second part was that 
my father, they told me my father had been involved in organized crime as well, which, you know, was kind of a crazy thing. But at the same time, I'd always known that my mother had a lot of suspicion around some of my dad's business activities. And I'd heard the story uh, at some point after I'd grown up about how my dad had wanted to have my brother born in Mexico so that he would have dual citizenship and so that businesses could be put in his name in Mexico. And, you know, so my dad had offered to fly my mother down on a private plane with a nurse to Mexico to have my brother born there. And my mother just felt that was so suspicious. You know, it wasn't completely out of the realm of possibility that my dad could be involved in something kind of nefarious. So the story went on that Stan has now come to the attention of the mob because of this fellow who'd confessed to him. That mobster spilling secrets to Stan, plus Ruth having left her alleged mobster husband and now working with Stan, Ruth and Stan told Pauline that put them under a suspicious cloud with the mob. Maybe uh, Stan, who was now aware of all this mob stuff, and my mother were working together, and she was feeding him information that she'd gleaned during her marriage and that they were maybe working with authorities. That made us a target. So what would have been one of the first encounters that your mom uh, had that really frightened her? Just after she'd gone to work for Stan, uh, so she was working in the church office as a secretary, And they'd had to go to a meeting at a different church, and so they were traveling together. And uh, suddenly there was somebody behind them in a vehicle chasing them, and they had guns. And they ended up sort of in a position at the end of a, a, a laneway. And they were ended up facing this other car, and she could see these two men with guns uh, out the window. That completely shook her up. And I guess if she'd had any question about what was going on, that was very convincing to her. Now, it it gets much weirder, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right. It was weird. Um, During that weekend in Sussex, they told me that we had people, security people around us who protected us, who were connected with this very secretive, alternative kind of agency, uh, security agency. It was an anti-organized crime task force that had been struck by the Privy Council because organized crime was seen as a big domestic threat. And uh, when it became apparent that Stan and my mother were being targeted, they had kind of intervened and revealed themselves to Stan and that they had been providing protection for us by the time I was hearing about it for years. And so I, most of the time, would have somebody who was kind of following me. And had you, up until that point, ever felt followed or seen these people? No, no, I never, uh, I was completely unaware. This is all coming at you at once. What what was going through your mind? This must have just seemed so uh, uh, implausible. It did. You know, my first reaction was, this is utterly nuts. And why are you doing this? Is this a joke? Is this, um, but, you know, the, the, complexity and the degree of detail and the way it provided answers for all of these unexplained events through my life, those things were kind of convincing to me. 
but I think the real convincing thing was this was my mother and Stan telling me this. Now, these are people who were, you know, very involved in community. They worked, you know, they were very uh, social justice minded, they involved with the church, well respected, well regarded. There was no sign in their lives that they were psychotic or mentally ill or whatever might explain that kind of a story. And so I just kept thinking, why would they make this up? What is there to be gained if this isn't real? But whether or not I knew in my heart that my mother would never lie to me. I mean, trust had always been sort of her major value. And when we were growing up, she would say to my brother, you know, you can make a mistake, you can do something wrong, but if you lie about it, then we've got a problem because if we don't have trust, we don't have anything. And I and I just kept remembering her talking like that and thought she couldn't lie to me. So ultimately, I decided I probably had to believe this. Now, as if this wasn't enough for Pauline to absorb, Stan and Ruth were about to reveal a truly stunning aspect of this story. As part of this whole government-funded security apparatus that had supposedly been protecting them all these decades, there was also a network of secret communities in very remote areas that were scattered throughout the country hidden communities that had two purposes. One uh, type of prison system, uh, this alternative military prison for people who were arrested for organized crime activities. And in this sort of system, they were tried by military tribunals and then they were sent off to these prisons. Stan and Ruth referred to this network of secret communities as the weird world. It was a joke. Calling it the weird world was kind of a joke, inside joke, because, uh, you know, Stan and my mother were very aware that the whole story was very weird. And they, you know, said to me, look, we know this sounds crazy. If you ever tell anybody about this, they'll say you're crazy. One location called Place of Hope was in a remote part of British Columbia. These communities, Pauline was told, were filled with people who worked in the prisons and also prison guards, the security people who looked after us and other people, and also people who had somehow been caught up in organized crime and who were rescued but could not be released because of, you know, they would be targeted again by the mafia if they were ever out. Stan, as it turns out, after he retired, he had decided to go inside, that he was now working with this uh, weird world with the anti-organized crime task force. Stan was living in one of these hidden communities, the one called Place of Hope. They explained that Sybil knew about everything, but didn't want to follow Stan inside. So they had separated. And they told me that they, he and my mother, had been in love for many years, but now that he was uh, separated, you know, they were able to acknowledge that they were in love. So the purpose in telling me about all of this when I was 23 was that my mother had decided to go inside, meaning she was going to go and live in the place of hope and stop running. Over the course of the weekend, Stan and Ruth provided explanations for all sorts of weird incidents that had left Pauline mystified when she was younger. All the food her mom had thrown out, they'd received word that the mafia had tried to poison them. Ditto for that incident with the chemicals on the carpet when she and Ted had to wash their feet. Those unexpected hiking trips, 
simply laying low when a threat came in. Stan eventually even showed Pauline electronic gizmos that helped him communicate with the weird world. He had some kind of device in the lining of his wallet. And I felt it one time. It was a little device that would vibrate, kind of like a Morse code, dots and dashes. And so this was how he would receive messages. When I left that motel in Sussex, I was asked, could they put some kind of a beacon on my car that would make it easier for the good guys to protect me and know where I was? And I was given this little radio device. And I was shown how I could set it to not just receive like a little radio, but also to broadcast. And there was a particular way to set it that if if I was ever in danger and I needed to call for help, that I could call for help with this thing. But I was warned, don't ever use it unless your life is in danger. Because, you know, if you do, people will come to the rescue and they'll be putting their lives in danger to do that. So it better be serious if you're going to use it. I wasn't 100% convinced, but I thought, well, if it's not true, it means, you know, everything I know and understand about the world is wrong. And if it is true, maybe my life is at risk and maybe I, I do need to behave in a way to protect my life. So I went with it. You have mentioned your younger brother, Ted. Where Where is he at this point? So by this time, he has left the Maritimes and he has gone back to Vancouver and at one point was living with my dad uh, before he got his own place. And, you know, there was great fear. You know, mom and Stan were expressing great fear about, you know, his safety while he was there. How did you, um, like, you have a life, you have a job, you're working as a journalist, you have this, you know, a meeting with your mom and Stan and which basically sets off this bomb in the middle of it? I... You know, I I couldn't see the point of my life anymore. I just remember feeling fearful and also this terrible sense of what's the point of my life, which I had, you know, I was a young adult. I was starting my journalism career. I was going to get married. We'd bought a house. You know, it felt as though I was at the beginning of, you know, exciting things. And then all of a sudden, none of it counted anymore. Uh, so I, I, I just felt so out of touch and isolated. What was your plan in the short term? What what did you what what was what was your strategy? I didn't really have one. I just I was told as I left that motel and headed back to St. John, uh, you know, you can't talk to anybody about this. This is really secret stuff. If you tell somebody, that could put them in danger. And I thought my mom was going to disappear any minute, and I just. I was a real mess, and I couldn't talk to anybody, and it was really isolating. And even though I continued to have doubts, I I reacted as though it was real in terms of fear. I, I was afraid to go out at night. I yes, I went to the store one time, and it was I just had to go. I was out of something and had to go, and it was only you know half a block away, but it was just this very scary. <laughs> walk across the street where I was waiting to see if somebody would grab me. I mean, it was insane looking back. Uh, But there was this overall feeling of fear. The strain of keeping this to herself had a huge toll on Pauline's relationship with her fiancé. Ultimately, she broke things off with him and made a drastic decision. My mom and I were really, really close. 
And so ultimately I thought, well, if, the, if this is going to be my life, I guess I'll go inside. And, you know, Stan said there would be work for you. And they had this little house that he was talking about having been built in place of hope. And he said, you know, we would build you a little cabin and, you know, there's lots of staff there. You might meet somebody and, you know, life would be interesting for you. And I thought, well, if I say I'll go, then I'll, you know, then I'll go. But if this isn't real, I'll never go because it doesn't exist. So it just seemed like, yeah, let's just do this. Next time on Betrayed, the shocking conclusion to run, hide, repeat. I just felt like everything had fallen to pieces around me. And I felt sick and, yeah, it was not good. Both of us are, are frightened, of course, and, and concerned. All I can think to do is, is try and find somewhere I can go where there's light and, and there's other people around. That's next time on Betrayed. For more on the books featured in this series, including Pauline Dakin's Run, Hide, Repeat, and to sign up for our newsletter, visit our website at betrayedpodcast.com. Follow Betrayed on Facebook and Twitter at Betrayed Podcast. Run, Hide, Repeat can also be enjoyed as an audiobook. Find it wherever you get your audiobooks. Betrayed is a production of Penguin Random House Canada. It's written and produced by me, Tina Pitaway, with story editing and sound design by Paolo Pietropalo. Editorial oversight by Bhavna Chohan, Melanie Titino, and Rachel Brown. Special thanks to Kristen Cochran, Robert Wheaton, Beth Lockley, Shannon Poos, Abdi Omer, Christina Chin, and Laura Chapnick. <laughs>